Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Broger, and I'm here with one co-host. I'm Joe Lalo. Andrew is on Hawaii, is in Hawaii for a vacation, but we've got a great guest for you this week with some awesome information. We're interviewing Judith Anderley, the Chief Commercial Officer at LMBPN, who's been handling a lot of the international side for the company. You've probably heard numerous interviews with Michael Anderley, but I caught Judith doing a talk at the 2019, we missed this last year, uh, 20 Books Conference, on, and it was on foreign rides and their rights catalog and kind of how they're going to these international book fairs to pitch. And I thought, this is great stuff that hasn't been covered very much on on too many podcasts. So welcome, Judith. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Lindsay. See you again and, and Joe as well. Awesome. Well, as I said, Michael's been on quite a few podcasts, so regular listeners will know his story, but I would love to hear about you and your background and kind of also the formation of LMVPN from your point of view. Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, I grew up in Southern California. I actually was born in Central America and uh, arrived at Hollywood when I was nine years old. So it, I grew up uh, in uh, in Hollywood and went to Hollywood High, went to USC afterwards and uh, began my career in international business, which is something that I had always aspired to since I was a little girl. And um, I worked in the medical device pharma world for over 20 years. And in between some place there, I met this uh, young man who looked very young, and I had to card him when I first met him, uh, named Michael Anderley, because he's a very youthful-looking guy. Um, and so um, got married and, and began our life together. And I continued working in the in the industry while he set up his business, uh, marketing business. So at some point into our marriage, I would see him like typing away in bed. And I would look at him, and I'm like, okay, you know, he's busy with work. And then I would see it often, uh, and then I asked him once, what is it that you're doing? And he said, oh, I'm publishing my book. I said, your book? What do you mean? And so it turns out that he had already published his third book by then. And uh, it was something that he had aspired to his whole life, I believe, and something that just was nascent. And uh, he was able to do it uh, uh, during our marriage. And so he began the company. And uh, at the same time, while I continued in the industry, things were shifting. And at some point, he said, you know, I want to get to a point where I can retire you so that you can leave your industry. And it was a high income for the family, right? So... I was concerned that it would take a hit, but eventually uh, we came to a point where he was had been successful enough that I was able to retire and come into the company. And uh, prior to joining, we had talked about branding and so, um, you know, what he was aspiring for the company to be. And because my background is in marketing, um, I, I was able to assist him in setting up the branding. So LMBPN was a result of an aspiration that I had. Uh, for fashion, and he had set up a website for me, but then he took it over and put it into the publishing business as well. So for most of you who don't know, uh, LMBPN stands for London, Madrid, Barcelona, Paris, New York. Um, and so the company effectively started five years ago and uh, with Michael writing uh, on his own, and eventually it's taken off to where we're at right now. But what I can say about the company from an outsider standpoint of view is that fact that the company has come about through collaborations that Mike has made. Um, obviously, it's his effort and, and, and a lot of his uh, giving, information sharing that has developed the network that he has. But it also has to do with a lot of the people internally who have come on board simply because, you know, they enjoy Mike, they enjoy his story, and they've come on and have really helped us to develop the company into what it is now. Were you shocked the first time he shared how much he was making with you? Because I remember he took off right away. I met him at that first Austin conference. And he's like, what do I do for my taxes? I'm making all this money. And I was like, what? Who is this guy? I know. What do you mean? <laughs> um, 
I don't know if shocked is the word. I was actually pleasantly surprised that he was, he got to a point where I was able to leave the industry I was in and, and, you know, come on board. Um, I didn't know much about the publishing industry. I did definitely didn't know about indie publishing. Uh, but, um, I think that what really was for me surprising was, uh, the networking, the, the fact that in your industry, because coming from the outside in, I can say that it's really heartwarming to see how everybody comes together to help each other out. Um, authors, you know, in particular indie authors look out for each other for the most part. And so for me, that, that was a surprising part. And so, um, I think, you know, for us and, and, and Mike will probably tell you the same thing. We're really blessed. And so we're, we're glad, obviously, that it's successful from a business standpoint, but. I think it's the, the people side of it that's important to us as, you know, at the core of who we are. And then the money comes after. Um, and so we're glad that it comes. And obviously we want to be successful financially, but more importantly is the people side. So I think for me, the shocking or the pleasantly surprising side was the fact that the author community is such a tight knit community. Awesome. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, we want to ask you about the foreign rights, uh, you know, and I didn't know very much about you. You're kind of quietly behind the scenes. So I was stalking you on LinkedIn, like, okay. And, and it's, well, it said that, um, you're fluent in Spanish and conversational in French and Portuguese. Uh, are these, does this help you, uh, with the, you know, foreign rights stuff and talking to publishers in other countries? Um, it, it doesn't help as much as one would think. Um, when I first started learning the languages, um, ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to work in the international. I, I was, I either wanted to become a pediatrician because I like working with children or I wanted to travel the world and, and work in the international side of business. And because I didn't have the vocation for schooling to become a doctor, um, I went to the international business side. And so I started learning languages, um, uh, since elementary school. I speak Spanish. Um, I'm fluent in Spanish from my background. Um, and at, at home, my father insisted that we speak Spanish fluently and properly. And so I, I don't speak Spanglish per se. I'm, I'm proud to say that, which is a mixture of English and Spanish that kids tend to do when they grow, don't grow up at their home country. Um, and so Spanish comes to me from uh, the fact that uh, I did speak it at home. And French, I took it up in elementary. And Portuguese came about because I traveled in my uh, business side I travel to Brazil uh, a lot. Sometimes I travel to Brazil five times a year. And so Portuguese is a combination of French, Spanish, and Italian, and it, it came easier for me. And so at the time, um, not that I'm that old, but way back when, <laughs> uh, when French was the international language for the Olympics, for example, um, it was more helpful. Nowadays, English is, you know, is the standard international language. And so if you only speak English, um, it's not going to be a hindrance that you don't speak another language. But but how it does help culturally is uh, when you speak another language and you learn more about the different cultures, it helps you to, um, in particular in negotiations, it helps you to understand how the other people view culturally what they're doing. And uh, there's some nuances in business that are important to know because you can really upset someone without even meaning to, right? Um, unless you know who you're dealing with and culturally what they're about. So I think that the, the Spanish and, and the French and the Portuguese uh, don't help from a language perspective so much, but it, they do help culturally to understand the other side. I can upset people even when they're in my culture. So that sounds like a <laughs> good talent to have. <laughs> I do that too as well, by the way. 
So I think for most of us, we kind of just hope that we'll be approached by uh, international publishers who have been maybe looking on Amazon or wherever they find possibly find you. But I think you guys actually go out and seek the foreign rights deal. What is the process like? Yeah, so I think one of the key points in, in business in general, but more importantly, or just as importantly in the foreign rights business is the networking aspect. Um, I see the networking more important than anything else because for the most part, um, you know, authors have great content, right? Uh, you know, if you have fans following, that means that you must have something good, some writing that's there. So the content is not as important sometimes as much as the networking. So, um, unless you have this book that is just, selling like crazy and your fans are talking about it and everybody knows about it and if somebody approaches you, you are really going to have to put the effort in going out. And for us, what that means is uh, because of my background in, in you know, uh, leading businesses globally, I knew that going to the trade fairs was important. And uh, when I joined LMBPN, the first thing we did is we went to the Frankfurt Book Fair and that began the process of us actively going to the trade shows, uh, looking through the roster and seeing what companies are going to be there and what was interesting to us and trying to schedule meetings with those individuals and meeting with them and showing them what we had. So it's really important if you're interested in going outside of your um, comfort zone and going to the foreign rights that you realize that you're actively going to have to put yourself out there. And, you know, uh, unfortunately what COVID has taught us is the fact that business doesn't necessarily have to be in person. So uh, a lot of people used to think, well, I don't want to travel and therefore this isn't for me. You can actively network uh, digitally as well. So either way, you're going to have to put yourself out there and look for opportunities. It's funny. The, uh, they used to have the Book Expo America it was in uh, Jacob Javit, which was right, you know, like less than an hour from where I live. So I went there several years in a row and it, it was completely lost on me that this was mostly for people to go and actually meet with publishers and do the in-face networking. And I was just walking around looking at the vendors booths and stuff. So uh, evidence, I suppose, that I've not always had networking in mind. <laughs> but um, for for folks who aren't so steeped in the industry and its tactics, uh, what exactly are you selling or licensing when you make a foreign rights deal? So what you're selling is your intellectual property. And I think it's important for people to remember that. And in essence, it becomes the book, the story. Um, if you're writing comic books, then it becomes the content of your comic book, right? If you're writing a novel, the novel or, or series of books. Um, so so uh, you have to remember that what you're offering is the intellectual property, the time and effort that you put into putting this story together. Um, but when you're offering it up for sale, what you're doing is you're giving the rights to someone else to do something with it. And sometimes I think authors forget that as well because they seem to think that they're going to transfer that right and they will keep control of what happens with that right and that that's not the case, right? If you're looking for somebody to do something with your intellectual property, what you're selling is the right for them to do something with it. And as a result, uh, you should be getting some money either up front with an advance and uh, in a combination of royalties or full royalties where you will get a percentage of whatever they do with it. And I think, you know, when we think about foreign rights, uh, translations, like basically just a foreign language version of the book is what a lot of us are thinking of. Like what other sorts of things are, uh, are likely to come along with a foreign rights deal? So depends on, on what your deal is. So for example, um, you go out and you say, okay, here's my intellectual property. Uh, I want to offer it to you. And assuming that the buyer wants to buy the right, they can then offer you a percentage for 
derivatives, which means not only the content of what you've written, but what can come out of it, like audio rights, film rights is what most people think about. Um, also turning it into, um, uh, for I've seen rights that can turn it into manga, manga or, you know, software games. Uh, depending on the contract and how it's, how it's written, you will see that they will offer you a certain amount of money for, and then they list out all the rights that they want out of your property. And so it depends on the contract that you're entering into and who's buying it. For those of us who are just one man or one woman shows, and maybe we've had some success, but we're not huge names out there. Do you think it's worth pursuing this stuff and sort of the networking or when we can travel again, maybe going to some of these book fairs? So I think, you know, one of the interesting things that Mike, that I've learned from Mike is the fact that you have to run your own race. Right. So it's difficult to say if, if, um, if, you know, if it's a suggestion that you should or shouldn't, it's a matter of what you want. So when you're putting your stories together, obviously, it, you know, it's the love of the writing that does it. And for some people, it's the financial income that they're going to get. And that's fine either way. Um, but then when you think about that, how important is it for you to spend the effort? If you're only a one person, is it worth it for you to spend the effort to try to go to the, shows, whether it be internationally or when New York comes back or on online, uh, is that effort, that time that you're putting into it worth it for the potential, you know, smaller amount initially, or is it worth it for you to spend the time and try to build out your fan network? Uh, to, you know, be on social media talking to them, uh, to try to expand and get another book written. So these are decisions that you're going to have to make yourself. If your interest has always been, hey, I would like to see my book translated into Japanese or some other language, then yes, uh, if that's in you and that's what you want, then it's definitely important for you to network and go out. But if it's not something that it interests you, at least initially, and you just have enough time to spend on your book and everything domestically in English, uh, then, then that's a call that you would have to make. So it's hard for me to say, yes, everyone should go out and foreign rights. For us, uh, it, it made sense simply because I, I, you know, from a little girl, I wanted to work internationally. International business has been my expertise. The companies that I worked with, the last one, I was a global director for a, a billion-dollar franchise, and it was global. You know, if it was offered to me just for the U.S., it wouldn't be something that interested me. So just for me, going outside of the English and, and globally has been something that interests me. But some people, they don't have the interest for that, especially if you're the one person. So I guess the message is think about how you want to spend your time and how how to be more effective and what's really going to bring you pleasure. And if, if it brings you pleasure uh, to expand your network in English and, you know, make sure that you grow it, perhaps that's where you should spend your time. But if it brings you pleasure to think that your book is going to be translated into other languages and you want to spend the time in the networking and what it takes to do it, then I think it's, it's good. Um, another thing to think about is the fact that just because you want to sell it doesn't mean somebody wants to buy it. Right. So I always talk about, and uh, Lindsay, you probably remember during my talks, I always talk about the WIFM, what's in it for me. So it's not just what's in it for me, but what's in it for me for the other person. And so what do you have to offer? So if you have, um, for example, one book that must be really good uh, because, you know, you put your time and effort into it, but just one book with limited uh, following and really not many ratings and uh, you haven't sold that many, is it really something that the other individual would want to buy? And if so, why? And so these are the things that you need to think about whether, you know, if you should and if, whether you want to go into selling foreign rights or not. 
I appreciate that. That's a great answer. I think all of us wish we had a Judith or, uh, <laughs> you know, I know uh, at some point, some people have gotten an agent just to do the foreign rights, but it seems pretty hard. Like agents kind of want the whole thing, right? They don't want to, they don't want to just be like, yeah, I'll get you your 15% in France. <laughs> so, um, have you found, I guess for you guys, obviously you, do you know how many titles you guys have now? Like, it's over, <laughs> yeah, I, I believe that it's over 500. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's so, so ambitious. I'm so impressed yes. with everything you guys do. Thank you. Um, has it been worth it? Like, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious cause I've heard from, uh, maybe midlist traditionally published authors that from my perspective that they said, okay, but they're not stars or anything. I've been kind of impressed with how much they've made from foreign rights because mm-hmm. they have an agent that's able to, you know, and maybe not that much in each country, but they get like 20 countries. Mm-hmm. And it adds up. So I don't know if I don't want to ask you, like, how much do you guys make from your rights? But, you know, if you're comfortable sharing any percentages or anything uh, to know, like, maybe what's possible. Yes. Yeah, so, no, for us as a business, foreign rights is not really a large percentage. I would say it's in the low single digits still. Uh, and that's because it takes time. And frankly, also, um, you know, for the LMBPN, not only am I focused on foreign rights, but I also do the legal side of it. I am the, although, I'm not the in-house attorney because I have a JD. I'm not a practicing attorney. We do have outside counsel. So there's other things that I'm involved with. Um, I believe that if you only had, um, you know, one person involved with the foreign rights, you could probably forego having an agent. Uh, the thing to think about agents is, again, on the WIFM, right? What's important to them? If you have an agent that's got, uh, you know, a lot of clients, um, what's the likelihood that you're going to come on and they're going to focus on your book and they're going to sell your book? Um, they wouldn't be in business if they did that, right? So they have to have like a whole buffet of things and, and, and they have to go out and pitch the different things and, oh, you don't like this, then I'll um, offer that. So when I hear of people who have been successful uh, because their rights have been sold in many countries, I'm like actually envious. I'm like, wow, that's great. <laughs> How do you get that done? Because it is, it is sort of difficult to do, but, but not impossible, right? Um, so, you know, it's an aspirational um, that you want to go after. But, but uh, you know, it brings me back to what I want to say about Mike. One of the things that he says is that if you want to follow someone else, you will always be second, right? Because they're first at what they're doing. So you have to really look internally and say, if, if my goal is to have my book published somewhere else, but I don't, I don't want to spend the time networking, then it's a good idea to try to get an agent uh, because then they will spend the time working. But, but don't have the expectation that you get an agent and therefore a deal will be made. Hopefully, and knock on wood, let me see if I see any wood around here. Hopefully it will happen that way. Um, but just have the right expectation, the set of expectations and, and, you know, and, and try to get an agent. And usually what the agents look for is, um, which sounds uh, crazy to say, but they're looking for something that's sellable. You know, how sellable is this property? Is it something that has, you know, a lot of followers? Uh, is it, has it gotten a lot of ratings? Uh, are there large sales? And large, it is depending on the agent and what they're looking for. Um, and so, you know, I remember in the pharma world, uh, being on the marketing side, working with the salespeople, it always flabbergasted us when the salespeople would come and say, well, this isn't selling. And then they would talk about the product, you know, itself. And I'm like, well, if the product sold itself, why would you need a sales rep? (laughs) And so likewise, you know, with agents, they're looking for something that they can sell, you know, but you need to find somebody who is also going to put some effort into selling your, your property. Um, So it's a combination of things, I guess, looking for an agent. If you don't want to spend the time yourself, it's a good idea. And then finding the right agent 
is another step. And uh, one of the criteria in finding the right agent I find myself is it somebody that I want to work with. Again, the networking aspect. Is it somebody that's going to be with me for the long term and not just for this one book? So, so there are various aspects. But um, to answer your question, is it a good idea to get, go and, and get an agent? Yes, if you don't want to spend the time networking yourself. Um, but even, you know, we, we have a literary agent, literary agent that we just signed uh, about a year and a half ago. And the reason we did that is because we want to make sure that our books go into film and TV industry. And so you have to have somebody who's got the inside, the networking capabilities in that particular space. And so we've, you know, sought an agent who would represent Mike's books. And subsequently, we want to extend it to the rest of our collaborators so that then we can have them have an opportunity as well. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, you were talking about earlier, like what's in it for me. Uh, do you have any sort of familiarity with what sort of bona fides an author should have achieved in order to make potential buyers interested? Like, do they look at sales numbers? Are the sales numbers even really available to them? Like, do they look at rankings? Like what makes a book or a series of books worth shopping around? All of those. So anything that you can, anything that you can add beyond the quality of the story. And again, so, you know, the first premise is, it has to be a good book, a good story, right? And, and of course, everything you write, uh, and I say you because I'm not an author myself. And so, you know, as authors, you, what you write is great because it's your baby, right? It's a beautiful baby. Uh, but you have to make sure that it's beautiful to other people as well. And the way people gauge that is your fans, your fan base. Do you have a large fan base? Do you have a lot of people that are telling you that your baby is good? Do you have high stars uh, on Amazon? And, uh, and if so, then do you have sales, large sales. Um, and, you know, again, large is depending on who you're speaking to, right? But I would say that um, you, you, you have to have a substantial amount, you know, in order for, for somebody to then take a look and say, if you have all these things, then is it something that they would want to represent? And so it's, it's almost like a layer of things. If you have a book that is a great story, but it's an unknown, uh, it's, it's, it's how to, difficult for anybody to pick it up because then they would have to do the legwork of trying to get it known. And that's not something that an agent wants to do. Um, so when we were at the, the conference, you had this really cool rights catalog that you guys mm -hmm. had put together and I'll put a link to it uh, in the show notes because you've got it on your website. What was the genesis of that and how helpful has it been uh, as far as pitching these uh, foreign publishers? So the genesis of it, and I think it's a resource that I'll send your way so that you can post it as well, um, is, is a book. And um, it was a resource. Uh, I'm, I'm looking it up to make sure I tell you the correct name. is How Authors Sell Rights by Orna Ross and Helen Sedwick. And uh, we know Orna from Ally. Uh, she heads up the Alliance of Independent Authors. And I'll tell you that book, if you do nothing else, if you as an individual are interested or even want to consider what foreign rights, foreign rights is all about, you should get that book. And one of the things that that book does, and a book that I read myself, now mind you, I came from experience worldwide, right? Everything else that I had, you know, all the degrees and everything, but you can never stop learning. You should never stop learning. And in particular, if you're doing something that is unknown to you. And so um, even though foreign rights was known to me, the publishing industry wasn't. So I picked up the book and it was the best thing we did. And in the book, it tells you, it guides you on how to put together a sell sheet. And basically what the sell sheet is, is a piece of paper that has a picture of the cover. It has a description. It's sort of like the Amazon page on a, on a piece of paper, right? Because it's got blurb. Um, you should put a little bit of background about the author itself. And that's where you put the rankings, the, the number of books sold and everything. And what that does, it's almost like a calling card. 
and you can either send it digitally or give it to somebody in person. And, and, and when you're speaking to somebody, whomever you're speaking to, whether it be an agent or a foreign rights buyers directly, they don't have a lot of time. So if you're able to grasp their few minutes and give it and leave it there, and they're able to look at it eventually when they have the time, that'll help to sell your books. And that's why when I read the book, I go, we need a sell sheet <laughs> immediately. And, and I knew of sell sheets because in the drug business, you have catalogs for the drug itself. So it's basically a product catalog but for a book. Um, just the other day, actually, and I'll send you a resource, um, you know, through networking, I get emails from publishers. There's a publisher in France who put together a really nice sell sheet. I thought it was really nice. It's very straightforward. So, um, uh, you know, I'll send you that resource so, so you can use it as reference as well. But it's a very basic piece of paper, piece uh, sheet of paper that gives the information about the book and, and why should somebody be interested in getting that book. Now, this is a Potentially a pretty uh, simple question on the subject of, of the, uh, the rights catalog, but um, how often are you expected to update it? Like, obviously, if you're talking about a physical object, uh, you can't update it every single time a right is sold. So, like, are the people who are receiving these sort of, uh, do they have the understanding that some of these books may be pending sale or already sold? Yes, they do. And as a matter of fact, what I heard is the, the rights catalogs is, is historical in the industry, is legacy. It's, you know, been there since uh, the industry has been around. And so what I heard is it's uh, obsolete the moment it prints <laughs> because, you know, you're you're evolving, especially if you're a publisher, right? You have news. Uh, and so what we did is we had a, a rights catalog, the one that you see. It has most of our series since then we've written other series. But because we have core series like the Catherine Gambit, I believe at that time, uh, it only had when we when we did that catalog, I believe it only had 19 books. It went out to 21. And then it had other um, offshoot uh, series that came out of it. So those are not included. Um, so if you try to keep up and try to update it, um, I think you're going to go nuts. What we did is, again, trying to, you know, the 80-20 rule. Where can I spend my time that is going to be more effective? What we're doing now is we're doing an audio rights catalog because we're focused on audio rights. And so that one gets updated quarterly. And so um, it's, it, it's, it's really interactive. We made it so that when they, they look at the page, they click on it. And uh, they could click on the book cover and it'll take them to Amazon. Um, and like I said, when I send you this link for this uh, uh, French publisher, they've done it really nifty as well. You know, the same thing where their catalog is really laid out digitally and you just look at it and it gives you the links. Um, so how often does it get updated? When I looked at their catalog, I can see that there were some things that were posted, I think, two years ago. And what happens is if somebody's interested, they'll write to you and they'll ask you, is this right still available? Because they know that many people are looking at it and they could be seeing something where the, the intellectual property has already been sold. So it's okay to send out something, for example, that you did last year, as long as it's still re relevant. Um, and, and so um, we're focusing more on our audio rights catalog, more so than the overall foreign rights catalog. Um, but, but as far as updating it, you should update it as, as soon as you have something that's really significant that changes. Okay. And this is a sort of, Referring back to one of the uh, questions I had earlier, we're talking about like when a book is, is, you know, what makes it sellable? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I obviously, uh, it's likely that the most, the hottest book you have is your newest book, but occasionally you'll have a, an established series that had, a, you know, was really hot for a really long time and has cooled off. Like, does recency have any sort of bearing on this sort of thing? Or are they more likely to go for the thing that was big five years ago just because it has the better numbers and the better sales overall? 
Um, you know, to quote Janet Jackson, I believe, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> I think, yeah, it has to be relevant. It has to be recent. But, you know, you have, it's a conundrum, right? Because if it's recent, you don't have a lot of stars or anything. So what we do is we pitch the whole series. We have a series that just launched the 12th book and it's called Opus X. And that series, the first book launched on November 1st, 2019. So, you know, we had a process, we had a whole project put together with different partners and they helped us to um, launch it wide. It was our first wide effort. And so that book, uh, the last one in the series, book 12, just published uh, February 12th. We have a um, public PR person that we hired in order to promote Michael Landerly, the author himself, rather than LMBPN, the publishing company. And when I talked to her and I said, this is this great series and book one, because we're used to pitching book one, right, in the series, because, you know, the reader wants to start the series from the first book. When I said, she said, great. And I said, it launched 2019. She goes, oh, that's too old. <laughs> and she wanted to talk about book 12, which was recent. So I think it's indicative of the fact that they're always looking for something that's recent. Uh, so it's just the way you, you, you post it and you sell it. I think it's important. Uh, they are looking for something that's recent, but obviously you have to have some meat behind it in order to support it. It seems like the kind of thing that all of us should have on our website, even if we're not going to go out and pitch people, like just so someone who's interested could easily see, like, here's the information. So I feel like the times I've been approached is by people who actually read the books, which is wonderful, but they had to like, you know, see that they were selling and read them versus, you know, maybe they just want to know this is this genre that sold this many books, you know, it's had this many downloads and Kindle Unlimited, whatever. So I don't know. Do you guys do it yourself or do you like, did you hire someone to put it together for you? <laughs> As I'm thinking, who can I get to do this for me? The catalog? Yeah. Yeah. No, we do it. have a lot of graphics and stuff in there too. Yeah. So, so, so it depends. So you have to have a project lead and that happens to be me. Someone asked us, do you have an agency for the press releases? Yes. And then I put on my other hat. Here it is. Here's the agency. Who's the attorney? Here he is. So, um, yeah, you know, being an indie, you know that you have to wear a lot of hats, but you do it yourself, but, uh, graphically. So it depends. Uh, either your cover artist can do it, but sometimes cover artists, you know, they're, they're good at cover art, but they, they're not good at like a catalog talk. It's a different, uh, look and feel. So what we did is we went out to um, uh, 99, 99 Works, I believe 99 Design. I should know that because I use it yeah, all the time. That's it, 99 and Designs. 99 Designs. And so um, you go on there and one of the things that is important when you're looking for a graphic artist on 99 Design is you have to have an idea already of what you're looking for in general. Um, and so they ask you to put a brief together and, and a brief just basically tells the people that are going to look at the work and, and the project and tells them what you're looking for. What are you, you don't have to have the design, but you have to have aspirational. So the more information you can provide, like the color or scheme, they ask you to give examples of different pictures. You look at the pictures and what is more in line with the look and feel of what you're looking for. And after that in 99 designs, different graphic artists pitch for the job. And then you look at samples that they provide. And once you see a sample that is in line with what you like, then, then you can pick that graphic designer and they start working. We got really lucky because the one, the person that we work with, now we've been working with her for three years and uh, she started with 99design. And it was just a, I'm looking for an audio catalog. It's going to have book covers. We have the book covers. It's going to have information, um, you know, and it's going to be audio. What are you looking? And that's how we started working with her. And she's, uh, her name is Boya. She's been outstanding. I think she's in Eastern Europe. And, um, it's a really good place to go to. But like anything else, it does take effort on your part 
Uh, I've heard of people who said that they've gone to 99 sign and it hasn't worked. And I, I believe like anything else, you know, these resources are sort of, uh, with all due respect to the people behind it, are sort of like tools. These are tools for you to use. But a hammer is only as good as how you use it, right? <laughs> Hammer's not going to hammer the nail alone. And likewise, like this, you can't just go to them and say, well, give me something of, you know, what you think is best. And believe it or not, some people do that. I heard somebody, an executive in the pharma world the other day, he asked me to see, to look at something for him. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, this is not working. He goes, right? I mean, the guy sucks. And I said, oh, well, what, what brief did you give him? You know, what, and he says, Oh, I told him, give me something that has a lens in it and doesn't look like an eye. <laughs> and that's it. And he's unhappy with what he got back. And so likewise, you know, for your, your, uh, catalog that you want to put together, you should have an idea of the something that you want to represent you and your books and provide as much information to the graphic artist. And they, once you choose a graphic artist, They'll work with you to come up with something that works. And so that's, that's what we do. We've been working with her for three years now. Very good. And I suppose you could start kind of minimalist too. Like you guys probably didn't start with the whole book, right? Just a page with the, the data on it, maybe to we, put on you for each series. We started with the, the first was the cell sheet, uh, back to the book with Orna. Um, I actually did the first cell sheet myself on Word. Uh, and it was horrible. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is not my forte. Uh, it was very Mickey Mouse with all the respect to Mickey Mouse. Um, and so I thought, no, we needed an expert, somebody I want, because again, I had an idea of what I wanted it to portray. And so, um, that's when we went to 99 design. Um, and yeah, and you can start with a cell sheet, which is your first book. And out of that, you can expand it and make a catalog out of it, uh, with the more books that you have, right? In the series. Very good. Uh, so just a few more questions on more general business stuff. Since this was sort of, uh, we're, we're recording this at the beginning of March. Uh, last year was 2020 and COVID in case anybody's listening in the future. So I assume you weren't able to go to any live events. Were you still, um, going out there and pursuing rights or, you know, did you guys have to pivot much last year with the business? So the business itself didn't have to pivot much because we are mainly an ebook. Uh, business, right? Most of our, our books, I think our overall sales come, I, it's like 90 plus percent. So close to 95 above percent ebook. So digitally, we're used to doing that. We're used to working digitally through Zoom. Um, but what we had to pivot, uh, networking wise was understanding that, you know, the, now the opportunities for networking were via Zoom. Uh, and not only so much the difference in hours, because we're used to that. Uh, it became difficult when you have to try to network with somebody when it's, you know, 3 a.m. It really is 3 a.m. your time. When you travel overseas, although it, it's 3 a.m. your time, your body gets accustomed to the daylight and everything that's happening and the noise. And so your circadian rhythm, rhythm changes. But when you're home, it doesn't change. And so you have to be on and, and, and you know, and talk to somebody the way you would. And, and it's really late for you or really early. So that's the only uh, nuance and, and difference that happened for us. I heard somebody say... Um, that they stop networking because, you know, what's the point? You're not in person. And uh, I reminded them that, you know, you have to try to be out there no matter what. And just because the trade shows went virtual, which a lot of them did, you still have to try to put yourself out there and still try to have the meetings and still have, try to do as much as you can. Because if you go away and then come back later, you're going to just have to start all over again and trying to build a relationship. So, so to answer your question, it wasn't so much of a, of a pivot per se, but definitely, uh, making put putting forth the same effort but virtually versus in person 
that you know that makes a lot of sense and it's one of those things where i feel like uh indies are a little bit more accustomed to doing things digitally and and, and remotely because we typically don't have say a travel budget right which, <laughs> it, which brings me to uh to my next question here which is uh, we spoke earlier about how a lot of people sort of saw foreign rights as the kind of thing that a publisher or an agent would handle and they would seek out a, a foreign rights agent hoping that they could have somebody handle that because one of the great benefits that a uh, a publisher has or an agent has is that they've got this whole framework in place for doing this sort of thing already mm-hmm. uh but obviously you know most of our listeners are going to be independently published and uh are foreign rights buyers becoming more receptive to indies and small publishers these days they are more so than in the beginning so it sounds crazy, but only, you know, I started with the company, I, th- I believe it was about three and a half years ago. When I first started, when we went to Frankfurt the first time, I met with a, several agents. The moment they, they heard Michael Anderley, which at the time was the, the you know, the main book and main, main series that we had. And the moment they heard that he was indie, I mean, some of them literally, and, and the French being the French, you know, they literally were like, they didn't even want to speak to us. And they explained that they thought in their mind that indie meant low quality, um, you know, low threshold from an intellectual side, right? Uh, they didn't look at it as literary work. Um, but now more uh, for the last meeting that we went, it was interesting to see that now they've made a difference between commercial um, fiction and literary fiction. And then I asked them, well, what do you mean? Commercial, now they're understanding that um, they see it as something that, you know, that people like and enjoy. And it doesn't have to be to the level of what they consider, uh, Camus, you know, the stranger. Um, so, so they, they, they are understanding that they have to acknowledge that Indies are out there and they're providing readers with stories that the readers want to read and not necessarily maybe what the literary agents consider something that was important. Um, and so Indies are accepted more so. And I think it just comes down to the effort that you have. But again, you have to have something that it's interesting. It's something that they want to sell or buy. And so you have to look at the different thresholds. Uh, again, uh, do you have a large fan base? It, do you have you sold a substantial quality, uh, quantity of the books? Um, do you have, uh, uh, you know, ratings that are, that are something that they want to see? Um, one of the things in Asia that they're really looking for is awards. So if you have an award from... XYZ Association, if you're a New York bestseller or anything, they love looking at that, sometimes even more so than the content. And so these are things that you need to know. Uh, but I think that if you're interested in foreign rights and, and, and you don't, um, you know, or you just don't have an agent, but you definitely want to put yourself out there, what I would do is I would look at the trade shows. And to your point, if you don't want to or you can't travel, uh, you look at the exhibitors that are on there and they usually list them by countries. So I would focus on what's the one country that you want to start with so that you can start learning how to negotiate. Let's assume it's a French. You've always wanted your book translated into French. Well, then you look for the French literary houses and you start writing them, sending because they, they list their email addresses on there and you start putting yourself out there. Now, are they going to come back to you? Maybe, maybe not, you know, but you keep on doing it. And one of them will come back to you and one of them will say, sure, let's talk. And so that's how you you start and and you start putting yourself out there and you can do it digitally. It's funny to me, particularly because it's like you talk about having a sell sheet for your books and you know what what what, what you know what can I sell from your books, but like it almost sounds like you sort of need a sell sheet for yourself too, particularly if you're encountering people who are more accustomed to uh, to working with big publishers. Like you have to first convince them that you're worth talking to. 
Yes, in, in some extent, but the way you do it is, um, it, and again, you know, the sell sheet does, it's not that a uh, foreign, um, of an idea. Look at Amazon and, and how you list your book on Amazon. And that's really the sell sheet. Literally, if you were to take a print screen of the Amazon page, that's your sell sheet right there, right? I, I don't suggest you do that, obviously, because, you know, what's the point? They could always go on Amazon, but the information that you need to put in the book is important. And to your point, uh, Joe, I think as an author, you have you have a section where you put a, about the author, just like you do on Amazon, right? And uh, let's say that uh, there's an interesting thing. It, everybody has something interesting about, them. you know, um, they grew up in Ohio and then they moved somewhere else. You know, just a quick blurb about this author and, and why he or she has something important. Uh, maybe they always dreamt of becoming whatever, you know, something interesting. Um, so to your point, I think that it, it, it's important, but it's not as much as important as the book and what the book is doing or the series and how it's doing as well. Do you have any tips for, um, I think a lot of authors are happy being one person shows, but then there's definitely the authors who are like really excited by a collaboration and maybe publishing other people. Um, you guys expanded so fast. <laughs> Do you have any tips, wisdom that you've gained that um, you could give to anybody thinking of getting into publishing others? It's important to get down to the people level. Uh, it sounds basic, right? It sounds common sense. They're like, of course, but believe it or not, it's something that sometimes is forgotten. So um, in every relationship, uh, in particular for myself, in every relationship that I enter into, whether it be personal or business, it's always about the person. Is this somebody that you like? Is this somebody that's like-minded? Is this somebody that you can see yourself spending hours and hours talking to? Um, and you're going to find quickly that there's some people that are very nice people, but they rub you the wrong way with the way they speak, the way they chew, I don't know, different things. Uh, but they're important things because these are people that you're going to work with for a long time. So if you find somebody that's like-minded, you like that you enjoy working with, then that's a first uh, step. And then you talk about the writing process and, and then, you know, how many hours you would each like to spend and who would like to take which task and everything. Um, one thing, let me put on my legal hat because it just, it's very important to remember no matter what. If you decide that you want to speak to a foreign agent or, you know, they start talking to you, they should know better to offer you something in writing and contract, but sometimes people forget. Likewise with a collaborator. If you start talking to someone, Joe, meet Lindsay, you guys like each other and you think, hey, let's write a book, start writing down everything you guys discuss. And writing that down becomes your contract because people think contract is a piece of paper that a lawyer put together and that's a contract. But the contract starts the moment you start speaking to each other and you start discussing how you want to do X. Uh, because what happens is during that conversation, you're both making commitments to each other. And sometimes you think that you're describing yellow and the way that you're describing it, they hear blue. And then when you, you know, put out this great baby and it's beautiful and, and it's successful and everything and, and life happens and you start seeing things your way or people get involved, attorneys get involved. All of a sudden you go, well, I remember when we first started, it was going to be blue. And you go, no, when we first started, I said yellow. <laughs> and, you know, then you get into the, okay, how do you decide? So the, the best thing to do is always write down what you're conversing, what you're discussing, always send each other an via email. Hey, let's hang up. Hey, you know, Hey, it was great talking to you. We said this or that, just put it in writing because that's going to help you both of you as you collaborate and put things together to remember the commitments that you made to each other. It doesn't. And, and by the way, you know, sometimes people think of lawyers or attorneys or the legal 
system is just the litigious side, which it is, it's very litigious, right? You get into fights and arguments. And hopefully the way you avoid that is in the beginning, from the beginning, start understanding each other fully. And you understand each other fully by putting it in writing and making sure that you're both aligned as to what you're saying. And you're going to find when you do that, you're going to find, hey, that's, you know, we talked about it. We agreed to this. The person will read it and they go, no, we didn't. And it's good because at that point you can clear out whatever you're not understanding. So it's always important at the beginning of any relationship to put it in writing. And you don't even have to get to a contract. Perhaps you end up doing nothing, but at least you have something in writing as to what you discuss. And, and then you're both covered. Yeah, we've uh, at like a lot of the business panels that I've been to uh, basically boils down to is like you don't have a telephone as far, as far as anyone is concerned. You don't have a telephone. Everything is conducted via email because yeah. then there's always the paper trail. It's automatic. Always. And uh, you have no idea how many times somebody said to me, well, that's what that's what they said or that's OK, great. Where is it in writing? No, we talked about it. OK. And then a month happens, a year happens, two years, three years, five years. How do you remember what happened on that day? You know, you don't, right? But if you have it in writing, you're able to go back and see what was agreed to. So it's very important. I, I could not overstate how important it is to put everything in writing. <laughs> and you think that would come naturally because we're writers. But so often you sort of like, you separate the business from the, well, you separate the business, like the, the money-making business from the word-making business. Exactly. No, it's also friendships, right? You're friends. So wh why do you need to put it in writing? You know, I mean, you're friends. Well, you, you need to put it in writing because, again, everybody hears things differently. We all come from different backgrounds. We all understand things differently. And it's, it's highly unlikely that two people come together and are like-minded to the point where you don't need to put something in writing. Um, and I'm sure it happens even within your family, right? Yeah. Where there's misunderstandings because you thought X and they hear Y. And so it just happens. So, yeah. Put it in writing. Always. Uh, all right. Always. So um, it, it seems like the larger, and I say this, I realize, uh, I say this based upon the way things traditionally have been, but it seems like uh, the larger the operation, the larger the publishing company, the greater the momentum it has. So, like, large publishers, and again, we're talking traditional publishers, tend to have very long pipelines. And as a result, they have less flexibility because the amount of time and money they invest, uh, just a lot of overhead. They can't really react to changing market conditions or, or uh, anything like that. So uh, is that an unavoidable consequence of like building up your operation to have more people and have more, you know, participants? Or can you still remain nimble even when you start taking on uh, a larger scale operation? I believe that it's all up to leadership, right? Um, yes, you can stay nimble as long as you set the pace. Uh, it all comes, it always comes from the top, which is why for us, we always talk about our ethos, who we are. And we always go back to our principles. Um, and this is something when I came on to the business, um, you know, we established our operations meetings, which happen every Tuesday. And it sounds like, oh, my gosh, it's boring. But it's really not. It's important for the leadership, the people who then go out and work with everybody else to understand what your goals are and where you're headed. And so you can't stay nimble because if you're coming together and you go, you know, is it at the core of who we do? Is it at the core of who we are? And is it going to help us? be true to ourselves. If it is, then you make the changes. Um, otherwise, you can get caught up with, well, if we do this, we might miss out on money or, well, if we do that, you know, you, you, you look at the numbers only. And so, therefore, change is really slow. Um, one example is Elon Musk. I mean, how big can, you know, Tesla and the whole business and, and you know, SpaceX, everything else that they have, the boring company, right, that he named it, aptly so. 
those guys move quickly and they're big and they have a lot of people, but they're big because he's the type of guy, right? That is able to move. I believe Amazon in a, a way with the same way with Jeff Bezos, you know, it's just a matter of how they think. Um, then you have traditional leaders who believe that, uh, you know, everything says a process and it's process oriented. And so everybody underneath becomes that. Um, the, one of the things, and I, and I, and I encountered it when I first started as well. If somebody tells you, well, this is the way we've always done it, it then, then you probably want to make sure that you work with this individual to help them think differently. Uh, because doing things just because that's the way they've always done it is what gets you into the mud and doesn't allow you to change. Um, so, Again, corporations, I think it's large that you can have large corporations, which of course, the more people you have, the, the more difficult it is to move. But if from leadership from the top, you set the pace already thinking and allowing people to be nimble and to, and to have, you know, their own thoughts. Um, I think that you can shift and depending on the needs, uh, and depending on the strategy of your company, you're able to be nimble and make the changes you need to. Um, we're an example of that sort of company where one of the things that we've done from a marketing standpoint and it's uh, strategic is we seem really large. I call it the peacock effect. Um, you know, we want to be like a peacock where you have all these feathers and it looks like, wow, it's really big when we're really not. We're kind of small, frankly, because we don't have a lot of people. But because we make the efforts to, from a public relations standpoint, uh, putting into the catalog and our marketing, making sure there are branding, our brand equity is all over and it stays, you know, the same. It seems like we're really big. Um, and so strategically, we seem bigger than we are. And so we can be nimble. But even if we were to a larger point, I hope that we maintain that spirit. So we are make, be able to make the changes that we need to as quickly as possible. All right. Now, um, since, again, mostly indie authors involved here, we're basically our own little tiny publishing company. Like an indie author does everything that a publisher has to do with the exception potentially of, of like payroll and stuff like that when you have employees. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's say that you are trying to start up your own publishing company. You're trying to take on other authors. What level of service is really expected? Like uh, as a publisher, would you be handling things like lining up editing slots and getting covers or uh, mm -hmm. would a publisher, could, could their job be as simple as simply handling the distribution and, and stuff like that? So to answer your question, if you're a, a one person, one man, one woman show, right? You are a publishing company because you have an author yourself, right? And from a business standpoint, you handle the editing, right? Hopefully you have someone else looking at your books because, you know, they will catch things that you, you can't. So you are already an editing head because you have someone else editing. Uh, from the cover standpoint, from the graphic standpoint, you're working with somebody creatively who hopefully, hopefully you're not doing your own covers unless you're really outstanding at doing them, which is congratulations, right? But you know, you have someone else. So you're already taking that publishing role. And by the way, I would, I just myself would never describe, even if I'm a, uh, independent as a, a, a tiny, you know, small, I would always, I am a, I'm heading up a publishing company. Judith Anderley is my main author, you know, and we have an editing department and we have a graphics department. So immediately I am making myself larger, right? And, and if you have that mentality, then you will come out and present yourself with that mentality. And, and the more sub substantial, the more substance you have behind your business, the more someone likely wants to join you. Um, but if you, if you come at it and, and, you know, you say, well, you know, I don't have this and all of that, then, then the likelihood of somebody wanting to come and join you and, and, and try to even take part of the things that you, perhaps are missing is, is less. So always, always, the way the advice I would give is always present yourself 
as a publishing company, you have a publishing house and you have an author of one yourself. It happens to be yourself. There's an author. You are the president of your company and you're heading up all these different things. Um, and I, and I understand that it, it can be a scary thought, you know, and somebody could think, well, it's easy for her to say that. Obviously she's got all the experience, but the experience comes with time. Um, you know, we all started at the same place. I spoke to someone this morning, actually, I was telling Mike about them. This lady who reached out to us from Germany, she wants to do the audio for our German books. And we are looking, actively looking for a company to partner with to do the audio. So I met with her and, and she was really excited and, 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 and it was thrilling for me. Well, she just, she literally, she's just starting. She um, is setting up her website. Uh, so I asked her, what kind of fan base do you have? She says, well, I'm setting it up. And I said, okay, great. Well, congratulations, first of all. Uh, but, you know, she put herself out there and she says her husband happens to be American. And, you know, for the most part, Americans were very entrepreneurial, right? Go-getters. So he told her, he says, write to them. You know, she says, oh, but they'll never get back to me. They're big. She sees this as a big publishing house. And she wrote and I said, sure, why not? Let's talk. So, you know, unless you put yourself out there and unless you just take the active role of saying, here I am, here's my business. I want to talk to you and I want to do business with you. Uh, the, the less likelihood, if you don't put yourself out there with that mentality, the less likelihood that somebody's going to want to even talk or join you. Yeah, that you know, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, there's a, a, a when I first got when I first went solo, uh, like I became a full time writer. My dad was worried that uh, when I inevitably failed, <laughs> I would have to get a job again. And then what would I put on my resume if I, if it took two or three or four years for me to fail? <laughs> and I was like, well, I'll tell them that I was running a small publishing company because I was running a small publishing company during that time. Right. And you don't even have to say small. Right. True. You, were, you were writing, you know, you were running a publishing company, right? Uh, th that was fully functional and had all the business aspects of it. So on your resume, you're a leader, right? You're an author uh, and, and you're an accountant, right? Because you ran the accounting department. So, yeah, I agree with you. By the way, with our kids, although sometimes I just roll my eyes and just kind of breathe, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I never tell them that they're going to fail. But what I do tell them is, listen, this path is probably not the path I would take. And these actions in particular, if I believe they're not the right actions, I said, I don't think, you know, this is the right action to take, but if you're going to take it, then you got to own it and you got to try the best at it. Uh, and I always tell them that we'll help them succeed, but we won't help them fail. <laughs> All right. Well, we appreciate all the awesome advice you've given to us this evening. And you don't have any books that we can plug for you other than the <laughs> seven or 800 uh, that you're publishing. Is there anywhere, where can people find you online? And is there anything you want to tell our listeners? Yeah. So uh, lmbpn.com here, let me move uh, so you can see the letter. <laughs> And on your shirt. <laughs> and on my shirt and everywhere else. Uh, branding is very important. Always brand yourself. Brand equity, meaning the asset that comes behind the brand is important. But lmvpn.com is uh, where you can go. If you have any questions, I believe there's an email address there. But if you want to write me, my uh, email address is judith.anderly at lmbpn.com. Um, and, you know, just if you just are looking for advice, uh, anything we can share, we're not experts by no means. Uh, with all of my degrees and everything, I can tell you that I know nothing. All I know is what I learned every day. Uh, but I definitely will share whatever I'm learning and uh, whatever I see with you. Um, I'll share the resources that I suggested in particular. I tell you, if nothing else, get uh, Orna's book, How Authors Sell Rights, and, uh, and, and that'll get you started in the foreign rights side. 
All right, great. I will put the links to your site, to your rights catalog, and to Orna Ross's book for anybody that wants to come by. This is episode 81. And thank you for listening, everyone. And thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. Uh, you can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six, episode 81. Thanks, Judith. And thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. So long, everybody. <laughs>